The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It's the Enviro Show. It's a green, green show here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richards. The team today, we've got Kim Winter, Rob Parkin, and we've got you. Well, let me tell you what we've also got lined up for this evening. Going to be talking first to one bird man about another. We're going to be talking to CEO of BirdLife, uh, Mark Anderson. He's going to talk us uh, talk us through the uh, the endeavours of Dr. Ross Wanless, who was named yesterday SAB Environmentalist of the Year. He's changed global thinking and prevented the extinction of some of the most threatened seabirds, amongst many other things. So, looking forward to hearing that story. After that, it being Marine Week, and to celebrate, we thought we would talk to uh, somebody who's really into, into their ocean. It's assistant scientist, he's Stuart Dunlop, and he's with the Ocean Research Institute. He's going to tell us a little bit about the tagging of nearly 300,000 fish. How do they do that, I ask myself. Then on to the land, Greg Straw, Greg Straw of Earth Architects, is going to talk to us about the landscaping of Nelson Mandela's Memorial Garden in Kunu. And staying with growing things on the land in our forage feature today, we focus on strawberries. And to close, our bio bullet today features chatty parrots. So we've got a few birds lined up on the show today. And don't forget that this show is podcast, so you can always listen again if there's something you didn't quite catch. www.safm.co.za. You can find us on Facebook. That's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And if you'd like to call in and share the conversation, do it too. It's 0892 08 9-2-10-2010. The Enviro Show. Well, the Enviro Show, and yesterday we were very proud to be at a very green lunch at the Johannesburg Country Club. The winners of the SAB Environmental Media Awards were announced. Very good to hear of all the people who are committed to spreading the environmental message, especially in the face of so often so much more hot, newsy competition. Well, I hope we, that we may speak to some more of the winners in the shows to come, but we'll see how we go. But we thought we'd start at the top because we would like to honour the man who took the Nick Steele Memorial Award for the SAB Environmentalist of the Year, Dr. Ross Wanlos of BirdLife Africa. Well, Ross is himself overseas at present. I think he's in South Korea doing, I'm not quite sure what we're going to find out. But there to accept, accept his award and give a very impressive presentation on his work, work that's changed the deep sea world of fishing and prevented the near extinction of so many seabirds, albatrosses in particular. Um, but there to accept the award was CEO of BirdLife Africa, Mark Anderson, who we have on the line. Hi, Mark. Hi, Nancy. You must be a very proud man. Yes, very exceptionally proud. Ross has done really well, and um, it's always nice to see the awards coming in because it's in recognition of the conservation work that we've been doing. If we weren't receiving awards, we wouldn't be achieving successes, and uh, yeah, Ross has done very well. It, it occurred to me that it's also nice to see an award, a top award like this, go top honours go to go to the world of birds, or you know, into, into the field of birds, if you like, because. You know, I, I might be saying this to the wrong man, but it seems sometimes like birds are a little bit like the Cinderella, you know, relative to the big boys like the rhino, the threatened rhino, etc., etc. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, they don't uh, necessarily attract funding. I mean, you can mm. imagine there's some really threatened little brown jobs, uh, larks, for example, in the grasslands or the Kalahari, which don't attract much funding, whereas, uh, you know, and, they, and they're very highly threatened. But, um, you know, big charismatic animals attract lots of funding and a lot of attention. Yeah. But birds are very important, as we all know. They're the proverbial canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. When, they, when they go, then uh, yeah, we're going to be going shortly after them. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> let's not get too gloomy before we start. But let's turn our attention to Ross, and congratulations to Ross in his absence. He's in South Korea at the moment. What's he doing there? 
Well, we've just been very successful in raising a significant amount of money. In fact, um, one and a half million dollars to take what we've learned um, out of Cape Town. I work um, on fisheries vessels um, to the high seas. So Ross is actually talking to the Korean fishing industry about um, you know, using the lessons learned to mitigate the impacts of fishing on albatrosses, petrels, and other seabirds um, to the high seas. So he's hard at work. He's actually travelled there via England where he had a few meetings. He's yeah. a very well-travelled man. Yeah, I think we can be very proud of the work that he's doing. I'm just looking at the info here. You know, I think he was at the SAB awarded him, or the judges awarded him, not just because of all the hard work over many years, but because as an individual, he has delivered significant lasting conservation outcomes. It's really good to hear that there's been good outcomes as, as opposed to simply hard work. The other bit of good news is that um, that the efforts in the South African hake trawl fishery had caused a reduction in seaboard, seabird mortality of up to 90%, which is phenomenal. Um, plus, he's also recreated the African seabird uh, group, and he was instrumental in, in getting the successful bid for the, for the group to, to host the second World Seabird Conference to be held in Cape Town. So many rounds of applause. But let's go back to this, this thing about him uh, helping, uh, you know, prevent th this huge mortality. What was create, causing the mortality in the first place, particularly in the, in the case of albatrosses, petrels, penguins, etc.? What's he done to turn that about? Well, Ross, Ross is the manager of our um, BirdLife South Africa Seabird uh, Conservation Program, and um, we do lots of work. One of the projects that we have we call the Albatross Task Force, which is a global project now. It started in South Africa, but now it's spread to other parts of the world. And uh, what was found uh, about 10 years ago was that fish, the fishing industry, um, both the longline fishing industry and the trawl fishing industry, was having significant impacts on, um, on seabirds, and particularly albatrosses. I mean, tens of thousands of albatrosses being killed annually. So in the, the um, longline fishing industry, basically what happens is the albatrosses grab the baited hooks, they're pulled under the water and they drown. In the trawl fishing industry, they get essentially get caught in the nest, nets. And um, Ross's team have been uh, involved in developing methods to prevent these mortalities. Including something called the hook pod, which you demonstrated to us yesterday. What, what, what exactly is the hook pod? Yeah, the hookpot is an exciting device um, which could ultimately be the silver bullet which resolves all the problems in the long line fishery. And uh, something that's been tested in our waters, we're very excited about this. It's a, it's a device that's been um, developed by BirdLife and uh, FishTech, a company in the UK. But what it does is basically um, it's, a, it's a device that takes the place of a um, sinker. So it helps the line drop into the water, but also it encapsulates the baited hook when the uh, hook pod gets to a depth of 10 to 10 meters, there's a pressure change, and the hook pod opens up, releasing the baited hook. So the, the baited hook then is unavailable to albatrosses and other seabirds. Just one of the methods that's being used and being tested to prevent these mortalities. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very exciting. You, you know, I have to say, I mean, watching that presentation, you know, the, the fishing industry, I mean, they get a lot of flack, but rightly so, because they're very greedy. Another one of the things that you told us was that in some areas, as many as 32 million hooks are set in a year. 32 million hooks. I'm thinking of all the, the catch that gets taken out, but, but the damage that all those hooks do. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's just a huge amount of... Um, fishing that's done, and these long liners send out um, fishing lines which are you know, more than 100 kilometers long with thousands of baited hooks. And, you know, it's in the, the industry's interest to, to actually find resolutions to the problems because they don't want a bird on the hook, they'd rather have a fish on the hook. Mm. Um, so that's why they've been very keen to work with us. And it's, 
it's just an amazing success story. Um, and, you know, it's top of the list in terms of our bird conservation successes in South Africa during recent times. You know, one of the things about albatrosses that we so, uh, you know, unless you're out there, you seldom see them. We all know a whole lot more about uh, penguins and, and uh, seagulls, or at least those of us who live by the coast are lucky enough to. But but albatrosses, I mean, you told us some incredible facts about albatrosses. Is it the grey-headed albatross who treks around the world twice to bring back food for the chicks? Incredible stories. Yeah, well, they, you know, they breed on the sub-Antarctic islands. Um, they're very faithful to their, their mates. And you'll have one of the pairs sitting on the nest incubating the egg or the or the chickens um, after it's hatched. And the, the other member, the other adult would fly off sometimes for two weeks to, to collect food to bring back to the to the, the chick. It's just remarkable. They fly such long distances. Um, you know, and, the, and the problem is you're having this, this monogamous relationship. Um, you know, they, they both need to be there. They both need to be there to raise the chick as well. So if one is, you know, is killed accidentally during a you know, fishing operation, um, it means that the chick is going to die and also you know, it's going to, it could take some time before the remaining adult to, to find a, a new mate. Mm-hmm. Why should we care, Mark? I mean, why should it be important? It's a bit like, you know, we hear about polar bears who are sort of, you know, being wiped off the planet, shrinking ice flows, etc., etc. What difference is a loss of albatrosses? But, you know, luckily they've been, 90% of them have been saved. What difference would it make in the in the food chain? Well, probably not too much of a difference in the food chain. I mean, they're the top of the food chain. They, you know, they're predators, they're scavengers. Um, but they, you know, birds like albatrosses are an indicator of the health of the environment. Um, they're flying around the, the subantarctic. Um, you know, if they're gone, boy, you know, we need to really worry because then there are problems. There's, there's no fish. We've overfished the oceans, nothing. Um, so that, that's one of the concerns. And the other thing, I suppose, is that now, birds have incredible ecotourism value. Um, you know, many people now will travel to the Antarctic to go and watch birds, penguins in particular, but also interest in albatrosses. There's a lot of pelagic bird-watching trips that mm. run out of um, Cape Town. Now, every weekend, there'll be several vessels going out taking bird watches to see incredible displays of, of albatrosses and other seabirds just out of our harbors. So they, they have a massive role to play. I, I think I mentioned to you yesterday over lunch that... Um, you know, bird watching in South Africa is worth a lot of money. A recent study by the Department of Trade and Industry found that it's worth somewhere between 0.7 billion and 1.8 billion rand. That's per annum. That's just that's the domestic and international bird watching in South Africa. But the important thing is it's growing. That's not you know that was study was done three years ago. It's worth even more today. Yeah. So, um, watching albatrosses and watching other birds is important for our economy. And I just see, you know, on the subject of birds, and it's a 0.7 billion rand, God, it's a phenomenal amount of money. Um, we just missed Big Birding Day, or Birding Big Day, um, was on the 21st. No, no, that's coming up. Um, oh, that... Yeah, it's coming in, up in November, so we... Well, it's supposed to be our 30th um, Birding Big Day. Oh, it's coming um, up in November. Oh, that's yeah. good. And all the information is on BirdLife South mm. Africa's web, website. Oh, Saturday the 20th... BirdLife.org.za, but, but what we're really excited about this year is we have a new category... Um, um, it's, it's a basically, Birding Big Day is a, an opportunity for people to go out and watch birds. And there's competitive categories where people try and see any birds they can see in 24 hours. Very competitive. But you've got a category which you're calling Bird Your Hood, which is really Bird Your Neighborhood. And we want people to, you know, just make a list of the birds they see in their garden or their park at the local stream. And take, you know, take people out that perhaps don't watch birds, expose them to birds. And we want to you know, promote an interest in birds. We want to encourage more people to watch birds. 
And that's November, the, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong date here, November the 29th, so there's plenty of time to get your head around that. And I think just lastly on the subject of promoting the humble bird, I think that you've got a, a Vote for a Bird Species project coming up too later on in the year. Yes, we have. We, we're very excited about that project. It'll be launched um, end of next month, and it's uh, really a, um, a fun campaign over the holiday season where we're going to encouraging people to go to our website and vote for South Africa's favourite bird. And we have great photographs of all of, um, you know, 52 of our birds, some exciting, fun text that we've um, commissioned, which has been written. A lot of people campaigning. Um, Nancy, you're going to be campaigning for one of our birds, too, which we, we're very proud uh, that you'll be involved. And uh, just, yeah, for, encourage people to forget about, you know, the usual troubles that we have and think about birds. And, and uh, the little message we have is that chickens don't count, unfortunately. You won't be able to vote for a chicken. <laughs> chicken's not a favorite bird this year, but there are others. The wandering albatross is one of them, so maybe people will be interested to vote for the wandering well, albatross. Well, chickens do count, especially on the plate. I think we eat more birds here than anywhere else in the world. But what's your favorite bird, Mark? I have um, several, but um, I suppose vultures. I've done work the last 25 years, a lot of work, research on vultures. And I've also done work on flamingos. I, I suppose I'm known as, as the flamingo man behind all that Campus Dam drama, that work in Kimberley. Mm. But, um, but vultures are great. Um, vultures are one, one of the most threatened groups of birds. And um, they're, just, they're just fantastic birds. They just uh, People think that they're dirty, smelly creatures. In fact, not. They, they're very keen. After every meal, they're going to have a bath. But vultures are, are a fantastic indicator of the health of the environment. Um, the African whiteback vulture, which I know very well, you know, when that starts disappearing, then you you know you know there's some some problems yeah. in the environment. They need food. They need um, areas free of disturbance. They need trees in which they nest. They need an environment which is free of poisons, free of lead, um, free of veterinary um, medicines. So, uh, I mean, vultures are just they're just fantastic, and they're such characters. You know, it's always great to watch a whole uh, flock of vultures um, on a carcass. Um, you know, in the Kruger National Park, it's just amazing how they interact, how they squabble over little scraps of food. It's like uh, yeah, nothing, nothing more exciting for me. Well, you really are a vulture devotee, aren't you? It's fascinating. We'll have to get you back another day and give us a, the full vulture picture. But in the meantime, thanks very much, Mark. And just to recap on those uh, items that are coming up then, Birding Big Day on November the 29th, Bird Your Hood, vote for your favourite bird, find all the info on birdlife.org.za. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there's tons of information on our website. On our website, it's updated regularly. If people are interested to find out about birds, please visit our website and uh, just scroll through the pages. You'll find lots of information. Anybody's got any queries ever, they're welcome to contact us too. Excellent. And in the meantime, do give our very best regards and congratulations to Dr. Ross Wanless, an environmentalist, SAB environmentalist of the year. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Mark. We'll speak again. Take Thank care. You. Thanks. Bye. Well, there you go, SAB Environmental Media Awards. Um, they've got all sorts of awards, and as I say, I hope that we'll be talking to some of the other, uh, the other winners and uh, merit award winners at a later stage right here on the programme. But uh, it's Marine Week, and in a minute we're going to be hearing about the wonderful work um, that's been done. Well, we've just heard about the wonderful work that's been done by Dr. Ross Wanless. But moving our attention to the briny deep and uh, what goes on under the waters... Stuart Dunlop is a scientist, he's an assistant scientist with the Ocean Research Institute, who have apparently for the last 30 years or so been tagging fish. So firstly, how, to what end, and what do we learn from fish tagging? Well, we've got him on the line. Hi, Stuart. 
Nancy, how are you? Excellent. Thank you very much. Yes, Ta- and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk about the tagging project. Well, absolutely. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm thinking now, you know, how do you, how do you tag a fish, slippery little creatures? And once you sort of uh, whoops it out of the water, tagged it, probably dead by the time you get it back in again. Well, just explain how fish tagging actually works. Okay, well, it's not as complicated as uh, satellite tagging as most people, you know, know about and satellite tagging great white sharks and whatnot. It's much more simple than that. If you can imagine a spear gun barb, you know, the, the end of a spear gun, you know, the long metal piece that people shoot uh, fish with. Yep. If, you manage, if you can imagine a miniature one of those about as long as your index finger. And so it's got a little barb on it in the, in the front part of it. And the actual tag, what we call a spaghetti tag, so it's a yellow little thing. It actually looks like a piece of spaghetti. It's got a, a cell phone number on it, an uh, uh, email address, and it's also got a unique number on it. So what happens is we go out, we catch a fish, we quickly see, okay, this is the one species we want to, we want to actually tag. We quickly insert the tag into the fish using a specially designed um, tool, which we call an applicator. It almost looks like a drip needle, a giant drip needle. And we simply insert it into the fish's muscle, muscle tissue or behind uh, pterygio 4, which is a, a, a nice word to describe a um, rib bone in a fish. And, yeah, we quickly let the fish go. The whole procedure can take probably up to 10 seconds if you're good at it, like, you know, if you've been doing it for a while. And, yeah, the fish is out of the water for a very limited uh, period. And, basically, it swims off with this tag until someone else catches it again. And then, yeah, they hopefully report it to me and, and give them uh, great information about these fish. Okay, so they get taken out of the water quickly, darted, put back in again. It all happens very fast. Yes, exactly. Okay. Why? What is the per- I mean, do you choose the particular species that you're tagging and what's the purpose? Yes, yeah, so in, on our program, we get um, anglers who are very conservation orientated or, you know, they target fish for fun and they want to release all their fish, you know, or they keep very few fish. So they phone me and they contact me and they say, listen, I want to, you know, give back to conservation. You know, I'm a fisherman and I don't take a lot of fish. So we, get, we teach them how to tag and they tag on our behalf. And um, the type of information that we get from these, um, you know, tags and in these fish and is um, movement patterns, so where the fish move to. So, for example, if I'm living in Durban and I fish a lot in Durban and I, and I catch a shad or an elf, which is one of the most common uh, fish along our eastern seaboard, I tag the fish and I release it. The next person who tags it, whether it might be Durban or it could be caught down in Mussel Bay, wherever it's caught, um, we can work out then a migratory pattern. Maybe, you know, the shad are moving it up and down the coast or are they nomadic? Do they just swim kind of wherever they want to go or do they do it seasonally? And because the program's been running for the last 50 years, we've actually got some magnificent information about, you know, fish movement patterns, specifically in the early days when people didn't actually know where fish went to. Um, you know, we learned over time that, you know, for example, shad, you know, come up into KZN during winter and Garrick follow them and so on and so on. Hmm. Yes, I suppose we, we would, I don't know if you heard us talking to uh, Mark Anderson there of BirdLife Africa. And I mean, they also do bird atlasing, don't they? Where they, they check, you know, people say, well, I've seen this bird there and this bird, there, another bird somewhere else. And so they sort of know what the, the bird's patterns are or movement patterns are or their sort of, um, you know, how many there are in one particular area. I'm just thinking, though, with fish, it, it would be less about finding rare ones. It would just be about finding sort of movement where they're going, where they've been, where they're headed. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and they're very similar. I mean, you know, birding have bird ringing. You know, you put rings on birds' feet. Um, tagging is exactly the same. It's just a different method, you know, to learn about where fish go to, the same as you would learn about where a bird would migrate to seasonally. 
So they're very similar things. And we can also work out things such as growth rates. So when, when a person does catch a fish and they are part of a tagging program, they record the locality where the fish is, the date it was captured, the type of fish it was, and the length, and if they can, the weight. Then I retrieve that information and I store it on a big database where I work. And once that fish is recaptured, be it the next day, the same day, or in 10 years' time, I can then retrieve that information and I can report to the people who caught it as well as the person who originally tagged it. And I tell them, listen, your fish was caught by Joe Soap in such and such area grown this much and it's moved this far over this time. So it's, it's very exciting information and I can I mean we've, we've tagged over 270,000 fish to date uh, over the last 30 years and we've recaptured about 15,000 what I mean by recaptures, we've actually caught fish with tags in them so there's about 15,000 fish that have been re- recaptured and there's some magnificent recaptures I mean off the top of my head I can think of one where a um, yellowfin tuna was tagged off Cape Point in Cape Town and was recaptured in the Seychelles only two years later, which is a distance of 5,100 kilometers. So, I mean, this is just magnificent information that mm-hmm. we can use to, to uh, make regulations or help managers manage the fishery and so on. It is extraordinary information. I mean, I was just going to say to you, what's the lifespan of a fish? And I suppose that depends, obviously, on the species and whether or not they live long enough to live out their whole lifespan anyway, you know, they don't get snaffled by something else or, or fished out of the water. Two year, I mean, what, what, any idea? Is, is there a sort of average lifespan for different species? Well, that's a hell of a complicated uh, question. But, for example, reef fish are very um, slow-growing and they grow to a relatively old age. So something like a red steenbrus, which is an iconic species in the offshore boat fishery, it can grow up to 40 years old. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's a long lifespan for a fish. And if you obviously take that fish out, it's gone forever. Whereas another fish such as Dorado, which is a common fish that we eat at, you know, an, at your um, local restaurant, and grows uh, for a relatively short period of two or three or four years, and then its lifespan's over. So they mature really early. So, um, for example, now, if I'm talking about recaptures, we have a red steenbrus, which was tagged in, tagged in the Titsikama um, Game Reserve in 1989, mm-hmm. and it was recaptured 22 years later off Carmouth. So that just mm-hmm. proves to us that this fish survived for 22 years without being captured by another commercial fishery, because remember, there's commercial fisheries operating off PE, you know, between where this fish was actually living. And for 22 years, no one ever saw it until all of a sudden, in 2011, boom, someone caught it again, and which just proves to us that these fish are actually living for a long time in deep reefs and they're not really, you know, not a lot of people might not be fishing in that area or they yeah. could be or just was a lucky fish. <laughs> Cute. Yeah, it's one cunning old granddaddy that managed to escape the net for 22 years. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. um, Stuart, do you work at all with Sassy? I'm just thinking of the sort of, you know, the South African Sustainable Seafood uh, initiative. Um, do, are you able to sort of track, you, you know, red listed, orange listed, green listed? Does that is that part of your remit at all, or not really? Well, um, within the organisation that I work in, we definitely sassy orientated, and we try and promote sassy wherever you know wherever we can. For example, the Oceanographic Research Institute is based at Ushaka Marine World, and there are restaurants in there that do sell fish. So we regularly go in there, and you know, we we promote and we teach. The guys working on the floor, you know, even the managers right down to the staff working at the tables, you know, we try and promote them. And we do run courses throughout Durban because obviously we're based in Durban where we actually promote and tell guys this is the best, you know, place to get these certain fish and this is the area you should avoid and, and whatnot. And yeah, so I don't work directly with it, but we do, we do definitely promote it in the area. 
Just have to ask you this lastly. I mean, certainly you weren't around 30 years ago when all this uh, tagging started, but um, have things changed? I mean, the numbers of fish, I mean, presumably the technology's got a whole lot better, so it's it's easier. But have you seen, uh, have there been massive declines of some of the fish, different fish species in that time? Well, definitely. I think if you speak to any fisherman along the entire South African coast, wherever it may be, they will tell you immediately that fishing 10, 15, 20 years ago is not at all like what you, you know what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And that, that in itself is enough, you know. Um, if we look at the stats, there definitely has been a decrease in the number of fish. Obviously, more people eating fish, more people targeting fish. Like you said, there's better gear to catch fish. So at, at the end of the day, fish... You know, we need to be sustainable. And I think the tagging project is one avenue where a, a person who's fishing can give back to, you know, sustainable fishing and become a citizen scientist. The common word we try and describe, you know, you're not quite a scientist, but you're a citizen and you're contributing to sustainable fishing. So we call you a citizen scientist. And I think there's definitely a notion of people's, you know, their mindset has changed. And I think if you speak to the majority of fishermen these days, they um, limit their catch and not catch their mm-hmm. limit. Well, if you're one of those guys who's standing out there on a harbour dangling your rod, you might like to think of yourself in terms of citizen scientist ship. Lovely. Stuart, thank you very much. I'm going to give out the website because I think there's probably a whole lot more info on it there if people would like to actually join up, you know, and, and yes, do their yes. bit. It's oritag.org.za, is that right? Correct. That and stands for, yeah. If they want to email me or contact me or ask me any questions or yeah. if they've ever seen a tag fish or if they ever see a yellow thing sticking out of a fish and they're not sure what it is, they can email me. It's quite simple. It's oritag. It's O-R-I-T-A-G at oriorg.org.za. Fab. Let me give out that once again. Stuart Dunlop, thank you very much. Enjoy the tagging. Thank you. Thanks very much. Take care. Thanks. Stuart Dunlop, very uh, young and enthusiastic scientist there with Ori. And that Ori is Ocean Research Institute. And if you'd like to find out more about their program, oritag.org. Or if you'd like to email direct, it's oritag at ori.org.za. The Enviro Show on SAFM. All these fish and all these birds, and I have to say that I'm very much looking forward to choosing a bird and uh, announcing the bird that I'm going to be encouraging everybody to vote for for uh, BirdLife Africa. But it's time for us to move back onto the land, not enough of the sky and the seas. Um, South African landscape artist Greg Straw, well, he's uh, he's been around the world a bit and he can list among the jobs that he's done around the world, the landscaping now of Nelson Mandela's Memorial Garden in Kunu. That's through his company, Earth Architectural Landscapes, where we have him on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Greg. Good evening. Hi. Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Uh, I think before we get on to the Memorial Garden, Greg, you've been all over the world landscaping different gardens. How did it yeah. all begin? Well, I think... Um when I was in Standard One, I asked my folks for a book on gardening, and I, I spent more time in the garden with our gardener than I did um, in uh, at the desk with my books. And I think that's where it really, really started. And with a father as, as an architect, that was also a push in the right direction. So it's kind of paid off all those early years. But I think the key here is earth architectural landscapes. I mean, you're the architecture of a landscape, I can understand. But I think the earth bit implies that you're, you're looking at, at it in perhaps in a slightly more holistic way. Well, what I did was I, I studied horticulture initially. And um, then I studied landscape architecture. And when I started my business um, 24 years ago, what I did was I, I started off as a nurseryman 
and as a landscape. And as time grew, I enjoyed the propagation and, 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 and the growing of plants. And as I started landscaping, it took on a whole new feeling. And I opened an, a landscape architectural practice, and that kind of grew. And as time went by, I was designing gardens and handing it out for other contractors to build. So what I did was I, I bought a landscape construction company, and I turned that into it. And then I had my own nursery. So what we are today is a landscape architectural practice who build their own gardens using their own plants all in one roof. So um, instead of having gaps in the, it's a full turnkey, it's the egg, the uh, caterpillar, the pupa and the butterfly, so to speak. <laughs> what an appropriate analogy. So to, to let's turn our attention to Nelson Mandela's Memorial Garden. What are we looking at in terms of uh, square meterage or, or hectareage or whatever? Because I think that you're, you're going to be writing a book about this project. Give us a, give us a picture. Well, it was a crazy project that I was involved in and uh, brought in um, seven or eight years ago by the family, where the family called me in and said, um, we've, we've got this project in Kuno, and we'd like you to design a garden. And initially, it was a memorial garden. Well, it was more of a remembrance garden, memorial garden. I had no idea that Madiba was going to be laid to rest in the garden initially. And um, I flew down to Mtata and drove through to the farm and met the family and we walked around and they gave me a piece of land on the corner of the private uh, property and um, it's 12.3 hectares to give you an idea and um, I built a nursery on site and started I, I, I came up with a with a quite a crazy idea initially which now as time went by over the last couple of years it's now made a lot more sense to a lot uh, to the family and a lot of other people Instead of having a, a memorial garden where you walk down an avenue and uh, you look at a statue and you pay tribute or there's an eternal flame, we did a lot of research and we looked at the Unknown Soldier, Gandhi's Garden, JFK. We did Martin Luther King, we Princess Diana's Garden as well. We, we went and looked into all these things. Mm. There, there's no book out there that tells you how to build a memorial garden. Um, so what I did is I came up with a, a concept that instead of walking down an avenue to towards a statue, what I did was I created a pathway, and a pathway which personified Madiba's life. And the pathway, the pathway is 1.2 kilometers. So every time you go to the garden, you enter the info center, which is, hasn't been built. These, these are all in, 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 in process right now. And you walk through the info center and then you walk past the dam that we've built and you start on the birth of Madiba and you walk along the pathway and the pathway walks you through the time and life of Madiba. So every time that you go and pay your respects, you actually walk through his lifetime. You don't, you're not in a situation where you're walking up to something, you walk through it. You know, you think about it, the old man went through so much mm. that to go and pay your respects, you should also walk through as much and and feel the hardships and feel um, the, and that what we did is we I, I created the pathways that used the contours of the hill. So while you were walking along, you in, initially it's on a level plane, and as the hardships took place, you turn and you go into an underground tunnel 
and you come out the other side and you start climbing the hill. And so everything, it's very, very symbolic. And everything's got a meaning. Everything's got another hidden meaning. So that you could, it's, 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 it's something that you could do again and again and every time find out something new. Mm. And that's, that's how it's, that's how I created it. Yeah, wow. I'm beginning to get a sort of visual image there. I mean, this is, this is more than a long walk to freedom, isn't it? Yep. You know, you, you describe the sort of the, the tunnels and the ups and the downs. What about the plants? What, what plants have you used to signify, like, the prison years, the freedom years? Have you used it, plant material specifically? Yeah, um, it was quite interesting. When I, got, when I got onto the farm and I was, I was told, Greg, that's where Tata wanted to be buried, I said, yes, great. And um, it, was, it was completely overgrazed. It was grassland. There wasn't one single tree. There wasn't a single flower on the entire hill. I fenced the area in. And then I started scouting around the old Transkai in the Eastern Cape, looking for indigenous plant material that was from the area. And what I did was I actually went through to Mbezu, where he was born, and I went to the original family farm. And where people were um, widening roads and where um, people were chopping and um, um, uh, opening areas, opening areas to um, to 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 open for graze land and for farming land, what I did was I retrieved the plant material and um, uh, I took it through to my nursery, which I'd built on the site, and rehabilitated, and then reintroduced it to try and create a piece of Mbezu in Kuno. Um, so the garden where he was born was then brought back to where he was laid to rest. In terms of when you say, Greg, how did you personify it? How did you use plant material through those areas um, to sort of prison years? Mm. What I did was I um, threw the whole Transkai, and, and a lot of things had been cut out and cut out in that area. It was just a grassy hill. I collected aloes. I collected all sorts of different succulent species that I'd found. I found weird and wonderful bulbs. I, I interacted with the local community in terms of medicinal plants as well. Mm and um, reintroduced them into the grassland. On the odd occasion, the, um, the local Nguni cows came through, 121 of them, and did some <laughs> natural pruning for me <laughs> while I wasn't watching. Mm. Um, and my staff gave me a phone call saying, something's happened, they've left the gates open, they've come back onto the land, chased them all away again, and then we start planting, and it was nature's way of pruning. Yeah. Yeah, it seems quite appropriate. Eh? Yes, I was going to ask you about traditional medicinal plants because that seems like it would be so very appropriate. But, you know, just talking yeah. about the Nguni cattle there and all the other creatures that may or may not have been attracted by all this planting. I, I mean, we were talking about birds earlier. Have you found yeah. that there's been other species, birds, creatures, whatever, who've That who've have been arrived, mm. yeah. I mean, when we first arrived, the, the only thing that we ever found was cattle dung. And um, after we fenced off and reintroduced all the ground covers, the succulents, I planted uh, 1,853 aloes that I'd retrieved out of where the N2 road widening was taking place, and I reintroduced them. So you could imagine all those aloes coming into bloom and mm. all the sunbirds coming back. Um, I planted just over 200, 300 acacia karoos. And there was not a single tree on the site. So you could imagine bringing all those back and the insect life came back in and um, there was shelter. And on, 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 
wild tree had two stakes on either side and two ropes holding it up because the wind there is, is, is crazy on those hills. Already the, the tree is two and a half meters in height and it had three nests inside it. So they, they had been waiting for something like this to happen. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was quite crazy. Taking a farm and trying to create not something, and, and the way that I did the garden, I didn't want to do something that was formal. I didn't want you to see a pattern. I, didn't, I, I wanted you to feel like you were just going back to a piece of what the old trans guy might have been before pet burn and grazing and chopping and firewood would come into place. So it's a wonderful thing that you're writing a book in, about it because it sounds like it would be completely inspirational. Perhaps people could sort of reconsider or recreate um, areas of it. But, you know, I'm sure the old man, as you call him, it would have gladdened his heart to see this because he was, he was a bit of a gardener himself. He, he famously was. gardened on the island, I think, afterwards. Yeah. He, Victor is, there. Is, that, is that there as well? You know, when I... On the odd occasion, I was on, on site, and, um, and Tata would, uh, he would send somebody up the hill and, and uh, say, um, have you had breakfast yet, my boy? And uh, I'd get into the car and drive down the hill into the house, and he would say, you've been working hard. I said, yes, sir. And he said, um, I see you um, planting aloes on the hill there. I said, yes. He said, I like them. Um, they flower in winter, don't they? And I said, yes, sir, um, they do. And we had a chat about the garden. It was quite surreal building a garden for somebody who was alive. Mm. And um, it, it, um, it was it, a very emotional garden, as you could imagine. You interact with somebody, and, 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 and that's where they're going to be laid to rest. Mm. And, and hence the fact that it took, a, it took a long time, and there was lots of... Fun and games, you could imagine, with all the bits and pieces that have been going on in the press and us being undercover and hiding, and people were thinking, "What are they doing up there?" And, mm. No, 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 we're building a. We this is his birthday present, and 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 what are those machines doing? No, no, we we're putting in a water pipe, and so the amount of stories that we had to tell to keep it hidden and to keep it. Uh, there were press on the other side of the road, guys with zoom lenses trying to take photos of us, and the police would come and chase them away, and. <laughs> it is, it's, it's been quite a journey, a long walk to uh, a garden. Yeah. Indeed, I mean, never mind a book, it sounds like a movie, Greg. And I mean, it, it, you know, it symbolises, memorialises his life, but it sounds like it's been a life work for you. Is it, is it now open? Can one come and see? No, it's still out of respect, and I, and I'm, and I take my hat off to the family, and, um, you know, it, uh, Dr. Maki Mandela was the instigator of the garden, and, and if it hadn't been for her, um, this garden would never have taken off. Um, she, she, she has spearheaded it and, and, and steered it quietly through um, all these ups and downs. And um, out of respect, nothing could have been done. Could you imagine trying to build something like this for somebody while they were mm. still alive? Mm. It's just, it's not on. So we did the basics. We got the burial site and the grave site ready for the, for the event and, and, and the passing. And then after that was done, and you, everybody's seen that on TV, when it was inside that amphitheater that I built, mm -hmm. I, I built a, a soil amphitheater. I got this idea of, of like a nautilus shell that I dug out into the side of the hill, and I created this mounded raised area that enclosed the, the space. 
So instead of having walls, instead of having fences, I mean, the old man spent how much time behind walls? Mm -hmm. So what I did was I used soil and I revegetated and I planted it out. And that creates the amphitheater that's sunken into the hill. And um, that, that is the central piece of, of the entire garden. But you don't know that it's there because we revegetated it so subtly that it doesn't jump out and bite you. Mm. It hides inside the middle of the property and you will find it as you go. So it can be found? Or it can be found. Yeah. And it's, it, it, as, sorry, getting back, you were saying, is it ready? No, mm. it, it's still, it is another year and a half of building okay. to go. You could imagine yeah. um, 12 and a half hectares, 12.3 hectares with a 1.2 kilometer pathway through it with a dam, with a rill that follows you all the way down um, from the passing. So each stage is being built and each personified piece of the landscape is being built at the moment. The grave site is the only, and the burial site is the only place that's yeah. sort of nearly complete. Well, Greg, I just, I hope that everybody remembers to keep the cattle gates closed in future. No, I've sorted that problem out now. <laughs> Greg Straw, thank you very much. I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to see a little bit more about what you do. What a fascinating story. Look forward thank to that Thank you very book. much. Thanks for having Thanks. me on the show. It's our pleasure. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Greg Straw, he's owner, MD of Earth Architectural Landscapes. Well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the work that he does, earthland.co.za, earthland.co.za. Well, it's forage time here on the Enviro Show and on the subject of growing things, as we heard there today, going to look at that most seasonal of fruits. It's the strawberry. And that's with the owner of the landmark Polka Drive family farm in Stellenbosch, Leslie Zettler. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Polka Dry, it's, uh, it's one of those places I think uh, one, a lot of people know who live here in the Cape. Family farm, how long has it been in the family? Oh, it must have been maybe oh, since I've been little, um, about 25 years, I think. Okay, that's long enough. That'll do. Don't think anymore. How, um, how many uh, hectares have you got under strawberry or whatever the equivalent expression is? How much, how much are you producing there? Um, well, Polkra is one, one of um, a, a few areas where we grow strawberries, but we've got a total of about 45 hectares, and we're growing about 1,600 tons of strawberries annually. Hmm. Are you one of the few in South Africa, or are there many? I mean, is, is the Western Cape here a good strawberry-growing country, or do they grow elsewhere? Um, there's a couple larger growers. <clears throat> so um, there's, there's, for example, a, a couple of big growers up country, and and um, there's about three or four large growers in the Cape. The, the Cape has got like really good climate for for strawberries. That that Mediterranean type climate, which is which is really it's, good for, yeah, for strawberries. Which is what they like. Yeah. But I think that I mean, strawberry is not just a strawberry. I think there are hundreds or at least certainly many different varieties, uh, which I wasn't aware of. How many different varieties? Oh, there's, there's thousands of varieties. Oh. Um, and, and they're just coming out every single year. Um, you know, we, we, we get new varieties every year from, from, from America and Spain, Italy, and pretty much everywhere you can think of. And uh, yeah, we we just keep trying them out, and and, and if if they're if they're any good, or, and and they make it through our our climate and and, and our type of weather, and and our, and our customers like it, 
um, you know, we, we grow it and, and, and they work out pretty well for us. Is, is that the objective then of this sort of manipulation of the creating new species or cultivars or whatever they are? Um, is, it to, is it to make them more durable or is it to make them fatter or juicier or redder or sweeter or, or what? I think, I think it's always just, um, you know, the breeders are always trying to continually improve, you know, try and make the, uh, a better berry, you know, there's, you make it sweeter, make it, make it, um, make it travel better. You know, the, the strawberries are soft fruit, mm. it's got a limited shelf life, it, it's got its challenges, it, it can't grow in every region all over the world, so, you know, the breeders try and make strawberries grow better in certain areas, or they'll make it grow better in our climate, or in someone else's climate, or make it travel better, or... Or put it in tunnels and protect them. Exactly, yeah. or, or make it more resistant to mildews, so that you need that you're less dependent on on on, on nasty pesticides or chemicals or or other or other pests. You know, so they build a lot of more resistance into the varieties through through natural breeding. You know, the, the like strong parental lines. Mm-hmm. Is there such thing as an organic strawberry? I mean, is it possible to grow strawberries without any sort of chemicals, without anything sort of artificial at all? You know, I've, I've been overseas and I've been to I've been to an organic grower um, in, in Spain, and um, they, they, they do it brilliantly. Um, I'll be honest; like we 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 struggle. We 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 do try our best. You know, we we we. We've reduced our chemical usage enormously. You know, we're doing unbelievably um, interesting things, reducing our chemical usage and our fertilizer usage and things like that by um, things like biological pest control and and um, integrated pest management. So instead of going in and spraying pesticides, you're now looking at um, different types of things like weather patterns and scouting your fields and even introducing natural predators into the fields to go and attack the bad predator, uh, bad insects, so that you don't even need to go and spray for them. Like what sort of? I mean, when you do integrated pest management, it sounds very sort of you know scientific. Well, what does that mean? I mean, do you release in a bunch of ducks or? No. Um, so, so what what does that mean? Um, we would have um, say um, a, a, someone working for us, and he would go into the field and and go just scout the field, go and take a couple of leaf samples and go look at the leaves and say, oh, you know, we've got a certain amount of, for example, red spider mite, which is a, a really damaging pest if it gets up to a certain level. And, and we would analyze those levels and be trended over time and, and basically monitor those levels until it gets to a certain point and we know at this point it's going to do a certain amount of damage to the crop. And that damage is going to have um, financial impact and we need to act on that. One way of acting is to spray, which is which is which is not really the ideal thing because we don't really like spraying. It's not good for you. It's not good for us. Mm. Um, the other thing is maybe to introduce a biological thing like um, um, something called persimilis, which is a, an insect um, that we can introduce, and that persimilis goes in and it actually feeds on red spider mites. So you introduce the insect and it goes and feeds on the red spider mites and pretty much um, keeps the red spider mite populations under control. Hmm. And, you know, there you go, no need to spray. 
but but should the levels get too high and uncontrollable, I mean, we have to go in and control it yeah. with, with a chemical. Yeah, as you say, they are quite delicate, the soft fruit. Is there a huge amount of wastage? Um, you know, that's where the breeding comes in. You know, the breeding's become so good and the varieties have become so good now that your wastage is, is so low. Um, so most of the fruit that you're picking is actually first class. Okay, so what, where does all the strawberries for, for the jam come from then? Well, um, you know, because the fruit's all picked by hand, you know, there, there is a fair amount of handling damage. Um, and, you know, because there's a lot of movement and it gets picked in a picking tray and then it goes down to a pack house and it's cooled and it's repacked into pack to punnets, um, you know, there's a fair amount of movement and some fruit just don't make it. Yeah. And, you know, that fruit that doesn't make it is fruit that goes for jam, for processing. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned 1,600 tonnes annually, which sounds like a huge amount. Is South Africa, are we big on our strawberries, or do a lot of that get exported? No, no. Um, you know, as far as I know, we, we, we're, not a, we're not a big exporter of fruit at all. Um, in fact, we actually import a little bit of fruit at certain times. But, um, you know, relative to a European country, we're, we're actually a small consumer per capita, so, so there's, 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 still, there's still a huge um, potential. Um, I, I think the, the challenge is, you know, getting the market to, to love strawberries more than they do now and getting more people to eat and love strawberries. Well, hopefully we've gone some little way towards doing that very thing. Leslie, thank you very much. Very best of luck and may you be free of red spider mites and uh, thank you. have produced only healthy strawberries. Lovely. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Leslie Zettler, Polka Drive Farm. Well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more, polkadrivefarm.co.za. And if there's anything you'd like us to investigate in our forage feature, let us know. Uh, we're at enviro at safm.co.za. The 1994 elections brought us dignity. Apartheid is no more. Racism is now a criminal offence. So let's be proud of how far we've come and celebrate who we are each Friday by wearing anything that expresses our pride in our nation. Freedom Fridays. Wear it with pride. Post your messages and photos on Facebook and Twitter. Hashtag Freedom Friday. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. The Enviro Show. Well, to close here on the Enviro Show tonight, taking the place of our green goodie for tonight, another in our Bio Bullet series with today on the garrulous parrot, which come from... Which come from where? So widespread. Um, on most continents, there are very many in South America, uh, many in Australia, a few in Africa, and, and some in, in, in Asia. So they, they're found in all of the tropical regions, uh, even in Madagascar. Um, but the, the most familiar parrot, I think, to most people in South Africa would be the um, African grey parrot, which comes from the, the Congo Basin. Others, like the lovebirds, are also kept in captivity. And, of course, there are, you know, the, the, the worldwide, the, the, the favourite parrot in captivity is, is the budgerigar, which comes from Australia. But all of these parrots, uh, to varying degrees, um, show something that's seldom acknowledged by their keepers, and that is a level of intelligence which rivals the range of intelligence that you see in monkeys, you know, ranging from monkeys through to the higher apes. In other words, if you go from something like a vervet monkey uh, through to something like a bonobo or a chimpanzee, there's a range of, of relative brain size and, and intelligence that is, is replicated in, in the parrots of the world.
And in the case of the, the cage favorite, the, the African grey parrot, you're really dealing with an intelligence, uh, somewhat disguised in the form of a bird, uh, that is, is fully chimpanzee level. Now, what's fascinating about parrots, and, and, and where parrots have it over chimpanzees, uh, in a way, is that parrots can speak English. In fact, they can speak any human language that they're given an opportunity to, to learn. And, and everybody knows that parrots mouth human words, but, but it's, biologically it's been established that it goes far beyond that because that implies a kind of parrot learning in which the bird does not know the meaning. That, that, that's completely false. I mean, it's been proven again and again that if you train a parrot appropriately, it can speak your language, English in this case, both meaningfully, contextually, and responsively. In other words, it's, it, it is demonstrated beyond any doubt at all that parrots of, of various species can speak English in, in the sense of meaningful conversation, uh, which no ape can do. Now, we, we, I'm not doubting that the intelligence of a chimpanzee would be up to the task, but the point is that chimpanzees do not have language. They even have much more uh, poorly developed uh, voice boxes than we do. And so one of the shortfalls, of one of the uh, shortcomings, as it were, of the great apes, our closest relatives, is that they are nowhere near us in vocal ability. Whereas the parrots, who, who seem so, so alien in being birds, are um, every bit our match vocally. Uh, and that's particularly strange because if you listen to them in the wild, it sounds like ghastly shrieks with very little uh, meaning at all. So the biggest surprise of parrots is firstly that they can have such elaborate vocal performance. And then the added surprise that they can actually put themselves in our position to master our vocabulary with the meanings. They can master, to some degree, our syntax and our grammar. And they can master an understanding of our minds to the degree that we can hold a conversation with them in our language, whereas, and this is the kicker, we cannot hold a conversation with them in their language. And so it's a very humbling experience keeping an African grey parrot or even a budgie because you're really faced with an intelligence that's able to communicate on your terms but you're not able to communicate on its terms. Now, what most parrot owners do is they, they kind of, um, I guess, they're so subconsciously horrified and humbled by this, this confrontation with a, with a greater intelligence that they, uh, again, you know, subconsciously pretend that this creature is, is just mimicking or, or just being, in some cases, regarded as a stupid bird, you know, um, and, and the butt of ridicule. And that's an injustice to parrots because the, the, I'd say the prime uh, biological characteristic of parrots is, is this mastery of language, the most counterintuitive and surprising mastery of language, which, which really deserves further scientific investigation. Well, there you go. How's that for turning the tables? I mean, here they are able to speak our language, but can we speak theirs? No, we can't. Mind you, if you get one of those bird call apps on your smartphone, perhaps you could well do that. Fascinating. Well, that's it. Thank you very much for staying with us. You've been listening to The Enviro Show with Kim Winter and Rob Parkin and me, Nancy Richards. And I'll be back on Sunday with a whole fiesta of literary goodies and books. But right now, it's a spot on 10 o'clock. It's time to hand over for a change to Stephen Kirker on time. Hi, Stephen. How, how unusual. Nancy, thank you very much. And uh, fascinated to, to hear about the parrots. It reminds me of the uh, story recently of a guy who eventually found a parrot after being missing for four years and when he got back it was speaking Spanish. Yes, they can learn our languages. Can you speak a parrot? I can't. Anyway, with you till midnight. Nighttime music for a Thursday night. But first, the 10 o'clock news.